This week on Excelsior Journeys, my guest is award-winning novelist Guy Morris. Guy is the ultimate embodiment of the phrase, write what you know. Guy has been a lover of research for decades, and after over 35 years of working full-time, he has since retired and taken all of his love of research and everything that he has learned over the years and applied it to his books that are so tightly researched that Federal agents even knocked on his door asking for additional information about what it is that he's been researching. He's got a lot to say. He's got a lot of stories to tell, and I am so excited for you to hear them. So, JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's you, why I moment? taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid. Drawing stills Line of Ariel. On. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. So jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with him saying, I'm going to write home. I'm rather sense. impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw yeah. some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for tuning in for over 175 episodes. I really hope you keep tuning in because 2023 is going to be amazing. You know, Excelsior Journeys is going to be joining nine other shows as part of the Once Upon a Podcast Network. I am really excited for how things are developing with this Network that is all about inspiring, motivating, celebrating, and rejuvenating creatives of all types. We start, the shows are going to be starting in February of 2023. I'm so looking forward to you joining us. Now, when it comes to writing, there are four words that we hear from Asians, from publishers, from friends and family, write what you know. And when they say that, they don't mean to just regurgitate what happens in their lives, although some of them might. They mean that you're bringing your own knowledge and experience to the story that you're trying to tell. And what you don't know, you research and you find a way to weave that research into your story. My guest this week is a perfect example of both writing what you know and researching what you don't to give readers a tremendous ride. And he's also a perfect example of an Excelsior journey. Guy Morris has written pilot screenplays, songs for Disney Records, and three award-winning thrillers that have drawn comparisons to Dan Brown. His AI espionage and religious thriller series have been formed from both personal encounters and research that's so extensive it prompted a visit from the FBI. His stories are based on true events and technology such as artificial intelligence and other events in politics, science, and religion. And I must add that he's done all this after retiring from a career of over 35 years in Fortune 100 software and energy. Guy has an amazing journey to share, and it's a privilege to have him here. So it is my honor to introduce to you Guy Morris. Guy, how are you? Thank you, George. I'm a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. Thank you very and, much. And thank you very much. I, I need to, once again, give a big shout out to podmatch.com for, because you saw the show on there. You reached out. I read what you what you've done, and I just knew you had to be on the show because there's so much that that uh, that you have already done. There's so much that you're already that you're still doing, and it's uh, it's an it was an amazing amazing intro to to read. So I am so excited to Thank you, learn more about you and learn more about what you've done, what you're doing, everything. So let's start off with the latest thing that you have going right now. You have the your latest book that's out. 
correct? Yeah, I just released the the last arc, The Lost Secrets of Qumran, in November. I had a launch party last weekend. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about this book. It's the second book in my Snow Chronicles espionage AI series, a prophecy series. Mm -hmm. And it combines some of the archaeology and ancient history that I put in my Curse of Cortez thriller, as mm -hmm. well as the artificial intelligence, political intrigue that w was really part of the Swarm thriller series. Mm -hmm. And so it's really exciting for me. And as always, I think I, I like to tell people, I think the most incredible stories that you can create are based on stories that you discover. Mm -hmm. And so that research, you mentioned research, and I do passionately love that. I think that's probably my favorite part of the process is, <laughs> is, is learning things myself that I didn't know and then saying, oh, my gosh, that's really cool. How do I build a story around that? How do I yeah. extend that? Or what would, what would be the result of that if? And so I, I play with a lot of scenarios. And the last arc, it has a number of sort of I call the factual anchors or factual legs upon which the fictional plot and characters rest. Mm -hmm. And for me, that that blending of fiction and reality creates, especially for a thriller, which, you know, creates a higher level of plausibility, which for me creates a higher level of emotional buy-in and engagement with, with the story itself. Wow. And so the last arc has, I'll talk about some of the religious threads that kind of led to the title at, at first, mm -hmm. uh, but the, la the last arc refers to two historical events that, that, are, that are documented. The first one is that in January 2021, mm -hmm. the Ark of the Covenant that's been in Ethiopia for the last 900 years, it left Israel 2,600 years ago, it spent several hundred years on Elephant Island in, in, on the Nile in Egypt, and that's documented. There's papyri attesting to it, there's archaeological studies or, or excavations that have confirmed the Jewish temple on the island, and then it was moved after the Romans conquered it in the second century to Ethiopia, where it spent several hundred years more in synagogues before wow. the crusaders came and moved it into stone-cut churches such as La Labella and other churches that were basically cut deep into hard rock where they were, it was meant for, for safety concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, and about 900 years ago, it was moved to a church in, in Axum called the St. Mary's of Zion. Yeah. And it's been there ever since in a separate chapel called the Chapel of Tablets. In January 21, 750 men, women, and children, including the guardian of the Ark, were massacred when an Ethiopian army and militia raided the city and basically stole the Ark, and it, I believe it's been sold on the black market. There's been a couple of different unsubstantiated stories about where, where it might have gone to maybe another church, but there's no actual evidence of that. It, sound, it sounds more like a cover-up. And so if it's been sold on the black market, I started speculating. I took that actual event and I started speculating who might want an ancient relic of the Jewish people and be will have enough power, influence, and money to basically get part of the Ethiopian army and a militia to go get it. And so that will play into the, the book. And but I combine that. There are people, there are those who are there's some disagreement about whether that's the actual Ark of the Covenant that was made by Moses. Mm -hmm. Most people don't realize that there are actually more than one Ark made. Uh, the, the Ark made by Moses is technically called the Ark of Testimony. So we'll get to now in the 1960s, there was a copper scroll found in the Dead Seas along with all the other Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. And that took 
years for the scientists and the archaeologists to unravel it without breaking it, clean it up, decipher its proto-Hebraic writings. It was written by five different people. One of them, we believe, was the uh, scribe named uh, Barak, who was the, 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 the scribe to Jeremiah the prophet. And in that the scroll, it lists 64 locations where temple priests had hidden uh, tens of billions, tons and tons, billions and billions of dollars of temple treasures, gold, silver, vessels, etc. Yeah. And this event was also described in the second book of Maccabees. Yeah. So there, it's got an historical context there as well. In the 64th location is a second copper scroll that dis- supposedly describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark, made, Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Hmm. Well, for 50 years, no one's been able to find any of these locations. They considered them lost. They considered maybe the scroll was a fake, although who would make a fake scroll 2,600 right. years old was kind of a, a, an odd kind of thought for me. But about six, seven years ago, an American named Jim Bartfield actually decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. And his findings were confirmed by an Israeli archaeology and antiquities group metal scan and survey of the area that confirmed non-ferrous metals under each of those locations. Mm-hmm. But Israel can't dig there. They tried to kill the rumor. They dug a couple feet and then said, well, there's nothing there, even though the scroll specifically says to dig 9 to 12 feet down. But they they, they can't dig there because that's Palestinian West Bank territory. Mm-hmm. And if they dig anything, it would immediately go it's political. It would immediately go in this military warehouse where no one would probably ever see it again. Yeah. It's the last scene of the Ark of the Indiana Jones. Wait, it's the last Ark? Yeah. In, in reality, right? It's just we're yeah. going to put it in this warehouse and you're never going to see this. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, as, as a thriller writer, I thought, and, and from a, a man who had a math background, I thought, well, the probabilities that two arcs would mm-hmm. come on to sort of the market, in a, in a sense, or be attainable within a single decade yeah. was really sort of an incredible event for me. Mm-hmm. So that started me. One of the themes of my AI prophecy series, and I'll tell you about the beginnings of that in a sense, Mm-hmm. is is that an AI has decoded end-time prophecy. Mm. So one of the prophecies that in the AI was warning about, the coming of a third temple. And, and so I immediately started thinking about these things and what kind of political scenario could, could evolve yeah. such that would make that plausible scenario. And so I started researching more. And, and let me back up just a little bit. Sure. The, the story that started that, the AI that, that has now decoded, is based on a, a true event for me. Right. In, in, the, in the late 1990s, I, I was, I was a friends of, on the board of directors of a small film production company, mainly for business purposes. Really? And, and the, the company never really did that much, but it was, he was my best friend. And we had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But I discovered by accident an Associated Press article about a program that had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. It escaped. Those huh? don't know, that's an NSA spy lab. They created oh a Stuxnet virus that destroyed the Iranian centrifuges, nuclear centrifuges. Mm-hmm. They do sig- signals and cryptology analysis. And so this is a spy lab. Wow. So in, in my head, I'm reading this and I'm thinking a spy program has escaped the NSA spy labs and they don't know how to find it because they're asking for help. They basically yeah. said anybody who knows something, contact the professor in charge or the FBI agent in charge as well. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I couldn't put that article down. I, I cut it out. I taped it onto my monitor. I looked at it every day and I kept thinking, wow, that's, that's either a really, really dumb typo or it's a really, really careless slip. Mm-hmm. And, a, and the basis for a really good story. You know, like or the basis of an incredible story, either yeah. way. And because escape, it didn't use the word destroyed, didn't use the word stolen, didn't use the word lost, didn't use the word malfunction. The right. verb that they chose to use was in a program had escape. Now, escape, in my mind, said, well, that implies intent. Mm-hmm. That implies some level of intelligence or ability to make a choice. Yeah. It also implies the ability for a program to move itself and then erase its trail behind it. Right. Well, it's, that, al- it's almost like the supercomputer in Superman 3. It's like, it's feeding itself. It wants to live. You know? and, and this is years, be, you know, so the, we, we know that the government te- is it, what I would say when I, I've, I've been to a recent DOD seminar on artificial intelligence. Yeah. And the government itself, the DOD, is saying how far behind they are, that they're behind commercial industry. But where they're come on, behind in commercial industry is in how to adopt AI to things like logistics, management, organization, communications, the basic operation of the DOD. But where they're ahead, farther ahead, five to ten years ahead of commercial industry is typically in DARPA, the CIA, espionage, weapons development, where they're taking these technologies and they're investing a lot of money in, into those. So I started looking at, I said, well, let's assume this is true. Mm-hmm. I, I spent several more months trying to look at, well, what kind of architectures and design would it be required in order for a program to escape a, a data lab? And then I spent more time trying to figure out, well, if it had that amazing capability, what might it been designed to do? What would I want my perfect, invisible, uh, 007 espionage AI program to do? Mm -hmm. And so I went around and I I looked at my data center and I looked at my office and I looked at all the different devices and things that we had. And and I I came up with a list of attributes or functional attributes that the program would have, including what we now call the deep fake video technology. And my friend, I took the story to my friend. I was excited about it. I was, I was jazzed that he was looking for some ideas for some great shows. And so he loved it. We, but we said, well, let's produce this because it's internet based. Let's produce this as a webisode. And so we did. Oh, smart. Yeah. We had a webisode series. Each of the main characters that I had created, including this character AI program, which I named Sylvia, Mm-hmm. or sophisticated language, virtual intelligence algorithms, was, became a character. Using the deep fake video technology to say, well, I've now got an image, a digital image of George Siros, so I'm now going to pretend to be George, and I'm going to say something to deceive somebody else. Right. And so it, could, it has a default persona, but it has thousands of other personas, politicians and, and celebrities and, and those and, and, this and others that it uses to manipulate the information and what others believe. So we produced the series. It was a huge hit. We got like 24 plus web awards. So we were optioned by one of the studios. And two weeks before the option was ready to be signed, the FBI showed up at my door. Wow. They were rather perturbed that I had figured out something <laughs> they really thought was top secret. Yeah. And they wanted to know how I, you know, how I found out about it. And so I, I of course, laughed. I thought yeah. it was cool. Yes, I had nailed it kind of thing. My wife was <laughs> out. 
oh my God, what have you done? What have you done? You going to go to jail? And so, but I hadn't broken any laws. I was just, I was just smart. So I told them they needed to right. do a better job at keeping these things secret if they wanted it secret. So bottom line, they went to the studio, they killed the deal at that end. And I had to tuck my tail between my legs. I lost a lot of money and I went back to Oracle. I took a job at Oracle and went on with my career. But -hmm. when I retired and I decided that I wanted to start writing, that story has never really left my heart and my conscience. And I was always aware of and looking for other signals and signs of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in 2016, Uh, There was a CNN uh, reported story about how Russia had hacked an older CIA cyber toolkit. And in that toolkit was virtually every single one of the programmable attributes I had assigned to the Sylvia, including what we now call the deep fake video technology. And then Russia sold all of that on the dark web. Oh, man. So that every despot, every criminal, every autocratic ruler, all of our enemies, China, Russia, everybody has access to those essential tools that we used earlier on. And so that became sort of the foundation for the Swarm series, the Snow with the Snow Chronicles. Snow means spy net online. And, um, and, and so... Moving forward, so in the first book, Swarm, we get introduced to the Sylvia, we get mm-hmm. introduced to the main character, and I wanted to have a main character who was sort of anti the typical Tom Clancy, James Rawlings, you're an ex-CIA or you're an ex-Navy SEAL and you're kind of rogue and you can kill somebody seven ways before breakfast, sir. So you like a more everyman kind of person. Yeah, right. and I created a character that was a little bit more loose based on some of the people I had, I had known and, and a little bit and otherwise, but he's a some child traumatized genius kid who was a, a hacker who hacked his way into UCLA, hacked into a Bilderberg Illuminati server, and mm-hmm. then is now living under a fake name, fake false identity of a best friend who was killed in an explosion after that was meant for him after he had hacked the Bilderberg Illuminati server. Wow. So he's living under a false identity. He's an NSA contractor. China has now used some of these technologies to develop an AI-based, an AI-enabled virus designed mm-hmm. to take down the DNS stations of our internet, which would basically destroy the, the internet itself. Yeah. And our, our hero, who's Derek Taylor, has to go out and try and stop this when the government doesn't know how or won't. And I'll, on his heels the entire way, he's using Sylvia basically as his partner. They're, they're kind of partners in all of this, mm-hmm. the Snow Chronicles, the Spynet Online. And the Admiral's daughter, Jen Scott, Lieutenant Jen Scott's a naval intelligence officer. She's assigned to investigate him. She doesn't like this sardonic, sar- sarcastic, smart mouth, you know, nerd and she's determined that she's going to bring him find evidence to arrest him and bring him down so she basically follows him all around the world as he's going through these things gathering the evidence she needs to bring him down when they get back to washington and so that sets up um and then you'll meet the creator of sylvia and a autistic genius a hacker named jester who's based on a real hacker named jester Mm-hmm. And so you'll meet all of these various characters as you go through, including characters in Amsterdam and London and, and India and Hyderabad and in Tibet and in other places that contribute to this story. Wow. It well, sounds so much fun. 
it, it's, it's an amazing like such, amount of class. It sounds like such a fun read. You know, like- so while Sylvia has now disappeared again, Derek is looking for her using the breadcrumbs left by the Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Jen and, and Derek, Jen basically destroyed her career by by bringing this guy down. But now, you know, but so he now has to save her life twice. Mm-hmm. And as Jen, Derek's being led into discovering these truths about the two arcs, he now has a choice to, about whether he's going to save these arcs from basically being used for political theater or whether he's going to save Jennifer, who's who's now in, in mortal danger. And mm-hmm. so we, we, we rabble up these these kind of concepts. So uh, one of the themes of the all of the books is that the Sylvia has now decoded end time prophecy. None of the other characters really understand what that means. They're not religious. Jennifer had some training from her mom when she was young, but she kind of discounted that, thinking her mom was had died of cancer and thought, well, it was her mom's way of dealing with death. Hmm. And so Derek was never never went to any kind of church. He was always he was a homeless kid for a while, and so he. There's always a, a, we're not quite sure what Sylvia is trying to tell us, but she keeps being accurate at things. And so we're trying to understand it and follow the clues. And so that leads into a, a this using these arcs along with it. We, we've got the Ukraine situation going on. So Putin really wants to ha- get back at the United States and, and undermine the United States, as he's already trying to do now through a number of different ways. Yeah. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia is very upset with the United States. He doesn't like us because we humiliated him after the Khashoggi murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we create now a fictional scenario of a former U.S. president who's under criminal indictment, who rather than going to trial, flees to Arabia where he declares asylum. And then he and the crown prince restart a peace deal that turns into political theater. So that sets up the basic scenarios around the last arc. Okay. Okay. And so great other things such as there was a book done by a journalist. He's been in the business for like 30 years. He Mm -hmm. wrote a book called American Compromise, where he describes where the the videotapes of of Jeffrey Epstein, Mm -hmm. how those videotapes likely turned up and owned now by the Kremlin and Mm -hmm. being used for for a compromise with both European and American executives and, and political leaders. Ooh. And so we, we tie in a lot of these kind of real world events to explain some of the things going on in the world and to yeah. try and postulate, well, what could come next and how does, how does that look for us? And a key theme in, in the prophecy element of the story is not that uh, Sylvia being an AI uses statistical probabilities and analysis and other tools. And mm-hmm. it's not doing it with a lot of dogma or religious doctrine because that isn't part of its, its programming corset. So it's a, it basically comes to the conclusion that prophecies are not about how a, an external God will destroy humanity, but how we're doing it. We're doing a good job at it by ourselves. Mm. And so it's pointing to things like some of the political corruption, the religious corruption, climate change, the, the food shortages around the world that are mainly not covered by U.S. media, water shortages, all of these other events going on, potential asteroid events and, and other things will come into play in the book as Sylvia kind of carries us through this sort of journey of it trying to discover and communicate what it means by and world prophecies. Mm. Wow. That is so much to unpack. Like that is, that's, that's, that sounds like, that sounds like it's, it, it was a real, real thrill, you know, no pun intended to really just kind of, you know, get all of this stuff and just figure out like how to 
properly weave all that into into one story. All that is one book. Well, it's actually some of it starts in Swarm. The story carries oh, through gotcha. the last arc, so it's really yeah. the, the series is kind of carrying you through to all of these things. The discovery of the Sylvia, how it was designed, why it was designed, some of the factual NSA technologies it used to basically move itself and propagate. So a lot of that and the dangers of AI in general are really dived into more deeply in the swarm and but we deal with sort of this political peace deal and the arcs and the ancient history in the, the last arc gotcha okay now now based on everything that you've done you know because i mean this when you've heard the show so one of the things that i love to talk about here is what i call the lightning bolt moment and that's that moment in time when you experience something or, you know, like read something, meet someone, hear something. And that just kind of gives you that impetus to say, like, that's what I want to do. That's the sort of, that's where my passions are. That's what I want to focus on. That's what I want my life to be. Now you had been, you'd been working with for, fortune 100 software, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. So Oracle, what was IBM, it? IBM, Microsoft. Yeah. So what and was it that got, startups. what was it that got you into writing? What was it that, that made you fall in love with writing? Well, I was a musician for many years, and I always thought for some reason that would really be where I would, would, would go. But, you know, that's a, a lifestyle that I wasn't really – I had. I was a single parent for many years. My son and I lived on a big, a large 50-foot sailing yacht. And so I, I spent a lot of time alone at night with my son because, you know, I, I, that was just part of being a single parent. Mm-hmm. But I was always involved in computer technology, so really way be- ahead of most people. I had computers at home. I was connected to the Internet because I had teams scattered around the world, and we used early Internet technologies when it was still dial-up to basically communicate and send files back and forth. I was an innovator in some of the early versions of AI, which were called expert systems. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had all this time alone, and my son was a big reader, and so I wrote a short story for him called Paolo and the Shark. And it, I, I realized that I enjoyed the process of creating a story, creating characters, creating tension, trying to kind of keep people engaged. And, and my son loved the book. And I think that was that was one of the eureka moments was actually writing. And I never published it. It was basically just for my son and my, my nephews and nieces and, and others in the family. Mm-hmm. And um, And the research for that book when I went to write a sequel to it was what became my first novel, the curse of Cortez. Mm -hmm. And that took me over 10 years to research. And I, I think it was, you know, there were a number of sort of aha moments. It probably began actually in college when I I realized I started studying the men of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. They were men of science. They were men of art. They knew politics. They knew business. They knew religion. They were, well, very well educated. They were very well versed. They were very balanced in, in their both left brain and right brain activities. And I think that inspired me to some extent about who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So even though I had a successful business career, when it came to creating, I always wanted to, I didn't want to write a business book. Right. I could have, mm-hmm. but that really didn't excite me because that's what I did already 16, 18 hours a day. Yeah. Writing action adventure thrillers based on real history 
was sort of the excitement for me. I found mm-hmm. that that was giving me my, my, my creative charge and that was allowing me to use my intellectual skills, but apply them in a very creative way. Mm-hmm. Similar to songwriting, song a good song is always a short, you know, take you into a character, a short story, a scene. We'll, we'll get you emotionally involved. We we all know about you know Jackie and Diane, right? Oh yeah. And so you can. We all know about Penny Lane. We all know about you know. So, but writing a book really became a a storytelling on steroids for me. Mm. And so I that kind of it began there, and then when I discovered this program. When I, when I really kind of stumbled onto this program that escaped and we created the webisode series, mm-hmm. that was another kind of an emotional creative high for me to be able to do that, especially in that it was so well received. We got so many awards. I had fans all over the world. One of my biggest fans who would write me almost every week, or at least every other week, was I, I only knew him at first by his alias, which was mm. Orbit at NASA.gov. Really? So I spent weeks wondering who was high enough in NASA mm-hmm. that he wasn't Guy at NASA or even yeah. Guy Dot Morris at NASA, but he was Orbit, and everybody was supposed to know who that was. Mm-hmm. And that's like saying I'm Rocket Man at NASA.gov. I'm you know Moon <laughs> Rover at NASA.gov. I'm you know yeah. I'm the, you know Space Cowboy at NASA.gov. That is a really cool alias. So mm-hmm. I, I, it finally turned out he was the a guy named Michael. I think his last name was Grobus. He mm-hmm. was the director of flight operations for the Houston Space Center. Wow. And so when we I was first writing the story on, on when we first published that that webisode series, he was one of my biggest fans. Yeah. And so that inspired me as well. And but, you know, I, I didn't get the deal. We didn't get the production deal. I had I was I had to go pay the bills. I had to go back and work for Oracle. And then the 16, 18 hours, six day, seven day a week job sort of starts to consume you. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm ready for retirement. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I need to get away from the stress, but I, I, I didn't, I'm not one, I'll, I'll never be a couch potato. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not one that deals with leisure very well. If I watch an hour of TV or two hours a night, I feel like I've overdone. And so it's always about producing something, creating something. And so the, the novels became a really great vehicle for me to continue my research, mm-hmm. give me a purpose for doing that, and then give me a vehicle to basically take that research and turn it into something, something else, something cool. Wow. Now, when I was researching the second book, I didn't know at the time that the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen and sold. Mm-hmm. It was re- I was actually in researching that Ark with the intent of baking it into the story in another way. Mm-hmm. But when I discovered that it had been stolen, that raised all kinds of other scenarios and topics and issues that I hadn't really thought about before. Yeah. And so oftentimes it's the research, what I learn in the research that that becomes a bit of an aha moment Mm -hmm. and where I go, wow, what would that what does that mean? Who would do that? Why would they do that? What's their intent? You know, what's what's going to happen to it next? Is it going to just disappear as some in somebody's private collection for a thousand years and then show up or somebody have a purpose for this? And so it, it those aha moments, those the research really starts me thinking about, well, uh, how do I then build this into the next? How does this fit into the scenarios I've already set up mm-hmm. or does it? And, and, and how do I then c- 
create the the personal stories with my main characters that blend into this. Mm. And so it forces me to do a lot more work to just not just having the aha, but to say, okay, well now how do I turn an aha into, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so that, and, and so that's kind of where it starts. Very cool. Very cool. And when you're going through that whole process, when you're, when you were working on that first book, what was that moment when you just felt like, Ooh, I got something here. And you just felt like everything was just kind of carrying you through. Is that what, was that what the kind of like what the research was doing basically just like kind of kind of taking over almost the, the research certainly has a huge impact on how the story comes out. And mm-hmm. in many cases, I'll write the story. I'll have a first draft or I'll have an outline and then I'll, I'll do more research to kind of say, well, I'm, I'm just kind of guessing I'm using generic information here. I should mm-hmm. go look up something real and, and, and see if I can kind of tie this back to something. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, yes, the, the research will kind of then lead me into new directions. Now with the curse of Cortez, because it had, I was working while I wrote a lot of that part, that book, and mm-hmm. certainly while I was researching it, it involved trips to the Caribbean and, and dive trips and trips to ancient ruins and, and talking to Mayan shamans and, and, and other things. And I actually had was cartel thug threatened to kill me during those times. Um, but I wasn't really, I, I was, the writing was became kind of jumbled. And so it took mm-hmm. me like 50 different iterations of that book or more to really kind of sort it out and get it working smoothly and, and kind of working out all the kinks. Mm-hmm. So when I went into Swarm, knowing that I had three main themes that I was really going to write about, artificial intelligence and other advanced technologies that were moving faster than our ability to control them, either legally or morally, mm-hmm. uh, political corruption, Washington, Moscow, and Beijing, religious corruption in, in multiple religions and, and using them for political power rather than for helping people find inner peace and pet faith. And then this idea that a program could decode in time prophecy. I, I realized that it would be better for me to outline it. Mm, at yeah. multiple locations, multiple characters, multiple threads. I couldn't have my main character know everything. He had to learn these things. Yeah. So who was he going to learn them from? And so I, I wound up outlining, but in, in that took me several months to kind of work the things out in an outline. Once I had an outline, it only took me a couple of months to actually draft the first draft. But then I went and spent another nine months or so cutting it up, throwing pieces out, adding new pieces, doing more research, tweaking before it became the, the final and so the, the writing process of writing does lead me places. Now, one mm-hmm. of the things I can outline, and I do do character development and planning, but how a character will respond to a situation, once I actually get into a chapter and I'm in, in any character sort of persona and I'm trying to get into their head and how would they, what would they say, right, to mm-hmm. this, or how would they respond to this? Or it, it sometimes you'll look at the outline and say, well, the outline's not going to work. Right. right. That's not how the character, even though the, I had an outline, that's not how this character would respond to that. And so there is a dynamic in the writing process that as much as you plan, as much as you research, you just have to kind of put that aside and say, OK, now we're in the in the midst of this. What's the emotional 
sort of connection that you want to create? What's the emotional type of response that seems real that you mm -hmm. want to create? And you have to be willing to use the outline as a sort of a suggested guide, but not as an autocratic rule. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it almost, it almost kind of reminds me of like the, the extensive research that you've done, like all the work that you've done. It's almost like the exact opposite of there's a, there's a moment in that the movie throw mama from the train with Billy mm -hmm. Crystal and Danny DeVito <clears throat> where this one writing student is reading her work and she just goes like dive, dive said the captain from the thing. And mm -hmm. And the captain pressed a button or something, and it dove. It just felt like exactly like when, when I read like all the different, you know, the extensive research that you've done and everything that you've said already, that was that was what, what came to mind. It was just like this person needed to do like that kind of research in order to actually try to tell the story that she wanted to tell. So it's it's fascinating, like the the lengths that you went to. To the point where you got that visit from the FBI, like that was that in itself is just is mind blowing. And it kind of reminds me of you were mentioning Raiders of the Lost Ark before, like it reminds me of the early scene where mm -hmm. they're talking about the Ark itself with the two government agents and which is a scene that I love. I, I always get mm -hmm. get a real kick out of that because it dives deep into the mythology and everything and really just kind of lets people know what to expect. Exactly. And then and then it plays it out, you know, when so I am really, really excited to to read to read this because I think it'll be not only be a lot of fun for me, but I also think like my father would really get into it because it's like you said before regarding Tom Clancy. He was a big he's a you know big reader of, of Clancy's work as well. So I think that he would really get a kick out of this also. It's interesting. I've actually I've been compared more often to Dan Brown, but also mm -hmm. Robert Ludlum. And more recently, somebody basically wrote a comment that said that if Tom Clancy and Dan Brown were to partner together on a book, it would look like The Last Ark. Wow. Uh, because I'm, I, I will have certain characters who will own that sort of militaristic government agency, you know, kind of mentality. And you'll mm -hmm. deal with you'll learn about some of the AI technologies that they use there. Mm -hmm. But because my main character is sort of this sardonic hipster hacker genius, you know, kind of that is anti-government and he hates guns and he hates violence. He prefers to get out of trouble either using technology or his by outsmarting people. Mm -hmm. it, it brings a little bit of a different tone than a Tom Clancy, right? Yeah. That makes it for me much more approachable for most people because most of us aren't the, 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 the Tom Clancy Navy SEALs. Everything is red, white, and blue. Right. And, and so it, 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 I love the ability to kind of bring, blend the two together. And so I'll, my research will take me to, I'll, I'll look up Rand Corp, you know, Rand, you know, strategic studies to the DOD and recommendations from the DOD and, and, and plan and weapon plans and, and all of these other documents that are available online. Right. And, and, and for most people, they might read it and say, okay, well, they might not understand some of it, but because I have a technical background, there's always a part of me that says, how are they doing that? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what sort of methods or, or programming or software or design or why would they do it? Why would they develop it that way? What's their goal? Yeah. And so it would, it, I, I use, I kind of go into it with a little bit more of an inquisitive mind to say, well, based on what I know, does that make sense? Or is, or, or, is, or are they just telling us a part of it and leaving out the really important part? 
Mm-hmm. And, and so it does cre- give me a lot more to kind of work on. An example, I think, that most people find it, or some people find interesting. When I decided to have the program Decode End Time Prophecy, Mm-hmm. It was based on something I had done myself. Really? I had, I, when I was working with a big oil company, I had been a student of prophecy for off and on a little bit. But, you know, prophecies are really hard to understand because of all the allegories. Yeah. But it finally occurred to me. I said, well, what if I, what if I basically ignore the allegory? You know, the flaming b- ball from the sky and all of a sudden, you know, all of the rivers of the earth are poisoned. Right? Yeah. And I said, well, what, what if I ignore the allegory, but instead focused on the the outcomes, mm. what happened after that? Yeah. And then I said, well, can I define, can I actually find a factual documented track record of those things that would confirm some of those things, not from the allegory itself, because that's the way a lot of people think in terms of prophecy. There's yeah. going to be these really great weird things are happening and, and then something bad's going to happen. But I started looking at more of a statistical probability analysis, mm-hmm. right? And, and a complex one that said, well, what's the probability of this event? Okay, now let's combine that with the probability of this other event and the probability of this third event and the probability of this fourth event. Mm-hmm. And I actually went in. I was divorced at the time. I was a single parent. My son was at my ex-wife's house. I didn't have any money to go anywhere. I hadn't. I was still kind of in that, you know, licking my wounds and still trying to come out of my shell phase. And so I spent an entire weekend at the office. Mm-hmm. using the computer programs and using our vast geologic databases and a stack of National Geographic magazines with data on all of these environmental and other things. Oh, wow. And I started building a probability map to say, well, what's the probability of, I, and I picked like 15 different prophecies and said mm-hmm. that I thought I could validate by documented evidence. Mm-hmm. including National Geographic talking in prophecies to talk about a third of the fish of the sea dying, a third of the birds of the air dying, a third of the beasts of the field dying. And then using National Geographic studies of species loss, decrease of aviary flocks. There's one comment that stuck with me. It says in the, the 1920s, when this particular bird would take off, the flock, the flock was so large, so many thousands of, of birds, huge, that it would darken the sky. Wow. And then I would look at, you know, National Geographic and other scientific studies that talk about the decrease in fish stocks, not just in North America, but in Asia and in, in off of Australia and basically every single major, major continent. Mm-hmm. And I started saying, well, that sounds like it might fulfill these particular. And so I, I basically I created the, the original probabilistic model. And my numbers, the numbers I came up with were somewhere along the lines of 1 to 10, 10 to the 17th power. Mm-hmm. Essentially 1.5 trillion, 1 to 1.5 trillion that it was random. Wow. And and I started, I went home that weekend and said, well, either I really suck at math and I've made some really <laughs> dumb error or mm-hmm. I should start paying attention closer to world events and other things going on because it looks like something is going on that's unique in all of world history. Yeah. And so that was the beginning. And so when I looked at this AI and I said, well, what does this AI do that makes it unique to other espionage or other types of AI? And I thought, well, let's overlay this this conclusion that we've reached in time that we reached that we're experiencing in time prophecy. Yeah. And let's pull in other world events into that and have those be sort of the 
the book by book of the series hooks that basically mm-hmm. we can bring you into that oh, very nice. bring in these these other elements so it became sort of a it seemed odd but it seemed like it was a way of integrating all of these other threads in a consistent viewpoint now you took the time to go ahead and put all this together you took the time to make these calculations you figured I, out i am what, that nerdy what, yes <laughs> <clears throat> now what but then you assigned that role to a computer have you had you thought initially about assigning it to a person who was kind of going through all that himself or herself? I, I a little bit, but mm-hmm. I wanted to avoid different people interpret prophecies differently. Mm. I didn't want to get into a this religion versus this or this doctrine versus that doctrine kind of argument. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want somebody. I didn't want to. You know. You know, we, we all remember sort of the signs or the, you know, from the 60s and 70s. You look pretty young, so maybe you don't remember that far back. You know, but, you know, people standing on the corner saying the end is near and everyone kind of passing it by saying he's a kook. He's crazy. He should be in an asylum. Where the sandwich people. boards and everything saying repent. Don't, yeah. don't make eye yeah. contact. Just keep walking. <laughs> yep. You know, <laughs> and, and I didn't want to create a character like that. I, ah, and okay. So by having it through the computer, by having it done through an AI, we kind of... Mm-hmm nix out sort of the insanity stuff. We nix out sort of the weird person who had a bad childhood stuff. We nix out the religious kind of conspiracy and, and, and other things. And we, we take it into more of what an AI would do, which was an analytical mm. approach. Gotcha. Okay. And it allowed, and, and, and because of that, it allowed the other characters to bounce off of those ideas mm-hmm. from different perspectives. Yeah. From how would a government official who's been in the government his whole life kind of view these things? How would somebody who's never had any religious training at all view this this kind of conclusions? How would someone who had some religious training but maybe walked away view it? How would someone from the far right view it? Someone maybe, and so it allowed me to create a a, a conclusion that a number of different people could respond to in different ways. Yeah, and and but without. And honestly, some of them basically said, well, the program is broken. Something must have gone wrong. It's got bad data. It's, you know, it's it's done that thing that AI can do, which is go off into this weird area. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and so it was a more pliable tool or a more pliable scenario mm-hmm. to use that conclusion and, and where people were discovering it as the AI would lead them into clues and and and, and different pieces. Nice. Okay. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense there. So when this whole thing was put, was finished and you were able to put it together and everything was, did you take a shot at producing as at publishing it yourself or did you, was a publisher able to take a chance on it? Well, you know what? My first book that I tried to get an agent on was Curse of Cortez. And Mm -hmm. I sent out over a hundred plus query letters. I got very little response back. I sent out probably another 50 or so queries on Swarm. I didn't really get any positive response back. Mm-hmm. And then I started being new to the industry. I, I yeah. thought, okay, well, if I, and there's an ego thing. Well, I want a big publishing deal and all that kind of stuff. And We all do. Yep. We all do. And then at one point, I my, my wife, who was always hesitant for me to spend money on anything, <laughs> finally said, you know, these are really amazing books. And this was before the 2020 election. And there's some political elements in the book about the rise of autocracy and, and, and other things. Mm-hmm. And so she says, you know, you really need to just get these stories out. You know how to, you've been in business a long time. You've produced 
global teams, you produced major products. Why don't you just do it? Right. You know how to hire an editor. You know how to go find a good designer. You know what that looks like. Why don't you do that first? And and you'll most agents now are are less looking for someone with amazing talent that they can develop as opposed to someone who's either following a trend or a fad. You know, we've got the I think the one that that struck me the most when I was researching it was a paranormal romance. Oh, yeah. So, rather than going after, you know, ghost love affairs, you know, or those kind of agents, or they're going after someone with a huge following, right? A million, you know, track record, a million people, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I had been in business for for all these years. So I really had none of those things. And I had no interest in going after fats. So I decided, well, I'm going to build, I'm going to release the books. I'm going to self-publish. I'm going to make sure that they're high quality, nice. um, that they could sit right alongside my my heroes, Dan Brown, James Rawlings, Steve Barry, Michael Crichton, Tom Clancy. But I wanted them to be compared to those. And, and the fact that many reviewers of different, like Kirkus, which is a major industry, kind of gold standard, Book Trib, which is Barnes & Noble, Book <clears throat> Life, which is Publishers Weekly, yep. Reader's Favorite, which is another big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of those have compared me to Dan Brown, Robert Ludlum, Irish Johansson, Tom Clancy. Wow. And so the, to be compared to my heroes is a validation for me, my literary heroes is a validation for me that I'm on the right track. Now, yeah. I believe that at some point in time, an agent's going to figure all this out. He's going to say, "How? Oh, wow, this guy's writing really great stuff. Yeah, he's starting to build a big audience, and, and I'm, well, I'm going to take a shot at him and, and see if we can get him in maybe not this book, but maybe the next book. And I, keep, I, don't, I don't let the lack of an agent or publishing deal keep me from producing. Uh, I'm just assuming that somewhere along my read list development, they'll, they'll tag along and, 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 and join, join the bandwagon. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And then what did it feel like actually like holding that finished book in your hands? One that you basically like cultivated from start to finish. You you obviously did all the research. You outlined it. You got it written. You worked with your team. You had you know an editor, formatter, cover designer. And then all of a sudden, here it is. It's in your hands. It is real. What was your what were your thoughts initially when that happened? Well, the, the multiple yeah. impressions. One was obviously excitement. You know, yeah. that I had actually finished the project and, and done it. But I had other, done other big projects before, multi-year projects in my career. And and so it was it was that gratification that I've done. But my especially my first couple of books, I didn't do any pre-promotion. I didn't mm-hmm. do any pre-building. I was focused more on writing, getting the stuff out of my head and writing yeah. and producing a read list. And so I, I wasn't really focused on the external sort of recommend, recognition at all. Yeah. I produced it and then said, oh, gee, I, I suppose I should go tell people that they might they might want to read this and see if I can get it out there. And, and so then I started getting reviews and then I started trying to figure out how. And it took me three years before I started dealing with social media and actually making a presence on social media. It was after the third book. Mm-hmm. And so. I was more focused on the actual process of producing something that I would be proud of. Mm. And, but given my, I'm kind of a a restless soul in that sense. Yeah. One of the other thoughts that, that came out, okay, I've got this one. It says, well, now you got to get, you know, you don't, don't, don't rest too long, buddy. You got to get off your fanny and start writing the next one. Yep. Right. Because not one book does not a career make. No. And, And so 
I would immediately start using that as the motivation to say, okay, I've, I've done it once. Mm -hmm. I can do it again. Yeah. And I, I, I want to do it so that this one is better than the last one, or at mm -hmm. least as good, if not better. Yeah. And so it, there was a spur of the moment. It was kind of an excitement. It was, Oh Lord, I haven't done my homework in terms of building a market for this. And mm -hmm. then, Oh Lord, I better get busy trying to do something next so that I'm not waiting for this to basically, you know, take me into stardom, but I'm just continuing the job that I've, I'm, I've chosen for myself in my career of being an author of great books based on real stuff. That's great. That is great. And say that there is someone that is, that's really into this sort of thing. Like there, there are different things that fascinate them. They are well-versed in it. And if they're not well-versed in it, they're doing the research to get well-versed in it, but they're not sure exactly like where to take it from there. What, what sort of advice would you have for them that they have? Like they have something in there. They're just not sure what it is yet, but they know that it's something. Well, in my beta readers and people that I, I look to for my counsel, I, I include people who are like I, I worked at Microsoft. Some of my colleagues and friends from Microsoft are, are AI architects. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always looking to them to tell me, you know, did I did I mess it up? Do, am I am I getting am I talking about things in a way that becomes sci fi? Yeah. Or things that are maybe real, maybe on the advanced stages of real, but I'm making it seem more more plausible than maybe it is right now. So I'm trying to look for them to validate me that I've done my research right, and and mm -hmm. they they've largely done that. Yeah, and actually impressed by the by my ability to comprehend. And I and the thing that I do is I'm not a developer, so I don't really describe it at a technical level. Mm -hmm. I'm describing it more at we have the ability to do this. This is how we use that ability, and then this is what it means, right? Gotcha. To society, to the world, to people. Mm -hmm. And then I'm looking to people who have absolutely no technical background at all. Mm. And I'm saying, when you read this, are you overwhelmed? Does it make sense? Can, does it is it easily to digest? Are does it is the any of the any of these historical or technical things bogging you down or slowing down the book or making you want to put the book down? And all of them have basically said that I've described it in a really easy, fun, digestible way. Mm -hmm. And they're excited to read it because they're trying to learn more about what's going on that they didn't know. Excellent. And that's, to me, the nirvana. When I read a good James Rawlings or Michael Crichton or, or you know, any of my heroes, mm -hmm. one of the three things I'm looking for is to say, well, tell me something, teach me something I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's true. It might be in history. It might be in politics. It might be in religion, might be in archaeology. But take, teach me something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Take me someplace I normally I would I didn't get to. I've never gone before, you know, because mm -hmm. there's all places, you know, I mean, I've done some world travels, but it's mainly been in business. So the, they can take me someplace where I've never been and help me explore that location in, in a unique way. And then keep the story moving in such a way that I'm always interested in, I'm staying up way past my bedtime because I just have to read that one more chapter so I can figure out what happened to so-and-so when he was trapped in such and such. And so I'm always looking for, for those three elements and I'm looking to see if I can evoke those three things in my readers. Excellent. I am, I am making that like my own little personal mantra really for, for once I'm, once my writing gets back up and going again, because right, right now my, 
my own writing is on pause while my agent is searching for it for a new home for the books that I have that are that are already out there. But that is fantastic. Teach me something I don't know. Take me someplace I've never been. Keep me reading, basically. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. And. Where can where can my listeners find you on social media? Uh, well, it's different for each one. On Twitter, I'm at Guy Morris Books. Uh, yeah. Guy Morris Books. On Instagram, I think I'm author Guy Morris. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook, I'm official Guy Morris Books. Or you can go to GuyMorrisBooks.com. Mm-hmm. And my website, I, I try to make it media rich. So there's uh, videos, there's image libraries of actual locations that I've researched as part of the book. I have fact versus fiction pages for each of the stories, as well as for, especially for the swarm story, a dozen or so, half a dozen, maybe a dozen links to, if I say that a danger of AI is that it, we're teaching AI how to basically code, so it can code itself, which is part of the lear- machine learning process, mm-hmm. and we're teaching AIs to basically code code in general, what are some of the dangers and ramifications for that? What, what, you know, mm-hmm. so I provide links if, if, you know, mm-hmm. how AI uses personas and deep fake video technology and imagery to morph back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll provide links. And so I'm trying to be transparent to say, okay, this is fact, this is fact, this is fact, this is fact. Okay. No, this part's only folklore and this part I may not. Wow. Um, so that there's some transparency when people read it to be able to distinguish what's coming out of my imagination versus what's coming out of, uh, and then I have highlights for all the various incredible reviews I'm getting and links to those original reviews where it's a major one. And so that people can go read the full review if they want and to see what others are saying. This has just been amazing. And I hope my friend, you've been listening and I hope that you are just as inspired to get into your writing as I have been just by taking those three those those three guidelines teach me something i don't know take me someplace i've never been and keep me reading keep the momentum going keep the chapters flowing and by all means keep doing as much research as possible so that way you can you can create something just as rich as guy has done and i just hope that uh, that you have been just as i said just as inspired as i have felt just listening to to guy's story listening to everything that that he has done listening to his methods of getting to where he needed his stories to be i just hope that that you're all doing the exact same thing i hope that you are following your passions following your research and writing what you know and getting it out there because the world is waiting for your stories so for guy morris this is george soroy saying to all of you ever upward and I will see you next week thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts and if you enjoy the show please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he's got it.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities and click on the buy me a coffee link. If you wish to give your support to the show, all interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment or suggestion for the show, please direct it to George at he's got it.com. <laughs>